0: welcome to the coda a music podcast and the perfect end note to your week i'm brian hasty and with me is the chingy to my ludicrous the th the five three zero nine to my eight six seven Rob. Don't change your number, Rob Christofferson, How are you?
1: That is the best intro I've received yet on this podcast. You know, I'm I'm good, Brian. Now that uh, we back, we back, we back in the speakers.
0: <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> that won't uh, that won't go away tomorrow, will it?
1: No, uh, we're we're back in black, getting blasted in the bleachers. Yeah, that's how we do. <laughs> that's how we roll on this thing.
0: You're like three seconds away from buying a Ford, like you know, F one fifty like jacked up
1: oh dude it's on order don't worry about <laughs> it
0: i hope you get like flame decals like all over the truck too
1: uh yeah i'm i'm working on that i'm gonna talk to my detailing guy see what he can do because i think he knows some people but you only uh, have
0: one detailing guy yeah
1: like he, there aren't that many up here in the Adirondacks, man <laughs> just not a lot of that
0: going on so apart from your desires to uh both uh, annoy me and own a truck, uh, things are okay. What do you, like, uh, you know, as time is progressing slowly but surely, is there anything that you're listening to these days that's not a B-side recommendation that you're really enjoying?
1: You know, uh, the day after we recorded the last episode, I received in the mail, I purchased a new turntable. I purchased uh, an Audio-Technica ATLP 60X, which is nice. It's a fully automatic turntable. Basically, all you got to do is put the vinyl on the platter, press a button, and it starts. And, uh, you know, I, I picked up a whole gang of records, including uh, Dinosaur pileup Celebrity Mansions, mm. Uh, Ashley McBride's Girl Going Nowhere, Yola's Walk Through Fire, Sturgill Simpson's Sound of Fury, you know, I got a, I got a bunch of things. Got to diversify. Yeah, I
0: even uh, managed to pick up a copy of uh, Toxicity
1: from Walmart, so
0: you know. <laughs> Which was a very confusing DM to get from you, because I was like, where is he right now where he's picking up a violent copy of Toxicity? And, and Walmart, the you know, arguably the largest retailer in the world, uh, is here to service your, you know, system of a down needs.
1: They're... About capitalism before they're about, um, you know, wholesome Christian entertainment, which you think, you know, they would be bringing to the table anyway, because, I mean, have you looked at their book section? But they managed to have a copy of Toxicity. I was like, yoink. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh sort of on the same tip uh this isn't meant as a humble brag, but a stat, like s- statement of being is uh I've recently started going to the gym again for the first time in like ten years mm-hmm. and it sucks it fucking sucks, uh, but it's also given me an excuse to listen to more corn,
1: yeah, and I kind of figured that was coming because I don't think there's an episode, yeah, Brian, when was the last time you didn't mention corn on this fucking podcast uh, dude I,
0: there's like zero episodes, zero episodes ago, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, I'm listening to Issues right now as I'm, like, sweating... Instead of sweating to the old days, I'm sweating to John Davis and, and, you know, and Keltz just telling me what to do.
1: You know what was amazing is I listened to uh, My Brother, My Brother and Me last week, and there was a short section where they were raving about corn. I shit you not.
0: Like, seeing them live recently? No, they were talking... okay.
1: I forget how they were... What exactly they were talking about, but they brought up, you know uh fucking corn, you know, mid nineties, late nineties corn, and uh, you know, Freak on a leash and how much of a fucking banger that song is. So,
0: you know, keeping the spirit of corn alive. <laughs> that's my plan. And Rob, I just want to congratulate you, uh, because I feel like this is the first time we've done an intro that's sort of like musically related more or less.
1: Yeah, I know, man.
0: Holy shit. It's only take us eight episodes to sort of talk about what we bought and listen to. <laughs>
1: well I mean like they're getting music for like you know 90, 95% of this thing i figured we could have you know talked about I'm not going to bring up what we normally bring up, but you know, we we talk about that a lot because just, it's a miserable time
0: of year <laughs> just staring outside. Uh yeah. so let us move uh, actually into the first news item I want to share with you this week. Um it is an article from the Vice vertical Motherboard and it's title really made me laugh and I kind of wanted to talk to you about this. The title is Musicians algorithmically generate every possible melody, release them to public domain. Mm. Yeah. So it's an article by Samantha Cole about uh, Damien Reel and Noah Rubin, who basically um, uh, have turned every single possibly uh, possible melody into a bunch of MIDI files and then uh, copyrighted the MIDI files and then released them out into the world. Um, and their hope basically is to try and stop more lawsuits from happening by preemptively owning every melody and blocking uh, the notion of lawsuits.
1: It's a genius idea that I don't necessarily think is going to pan out the way that they... You know, are putting it forth. Really, the idea is that, like, if we put every, you know, melody that is possible out into the world, put it on the public domain. There's no way that anybody could get sued going forward in the future. But the problem is, is like, what do you? How does that affect melodies that have already been written? For one, right. And, and secondly, like, I think the better point they should have been like trying to make was trying to show a court how ridiculous it is to sue someone over melody because the idea is you have to prove that the person that wrote the melody that is allegedly infringing on another melody listened to the song or subconsciously copied it somewhere along the line and like
0: you can't prove that in no, a court no exactly um, I want to quote directly from the article here. Copyright law is complicated and often nonsensical. It's difficult to say whether a court would consider real to be the author of a melody that is made popular by another artist. Uh it's a very interesting and as you see like it's it's yet to be court tested right so I'm not sure how that would go. Um something else I've noticed is that they're using the Creative Commons license system which is a system I'm familiar with and kind of super cool so it's CC0 which is basically a no rights reserved go ahead and use them as you wish. Um sort of uh license granted to uh creators. Uh yeah, it's a really as you're saying it's like really complicated in terms of like proving intent as well as like the idea notion of melody who owns it uh you know as it turns into a work right because it goes from thought to recording to then uh, publish product.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's not like people sue over lyrics in a song, per se, you know, per se, or uh, like style of guitar or something like that in a song. It's always over melody, and it's a really vapid fucking thing to do. So, Brian, I gave you a little homework before you we did. started. So, uh, <laughs> to give listeners an example of this. Um, I want uh, each of you to just pause this episode for a second. Go listen to the first, like, maybe 30 to 45 seconds of uh, Likini's Juice by Live, and then uh, a song called Treason by the band Cutlass. Brian, was it noticeable that they sound almost exactly
0: the same? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, almost, like, uh, uh, crazily so.
1: From the melody to the actual guitar tone? Just almost... Exactly the same. Last I checked, Live did not sue Cutlass over this. So, uh, you know, I mean, Christian rock boys got to look out for each other, I guess.
0: Uh, So I'm going to take this the entirely different direction, right? So there is disgraced english bland lost profits right so their singer was uh convicted unfortunately of uh well not it was not unfortunately he was convicted i'm glad he was convicted but unfortunately uh there were some child uh molestation charges that uh you know bore fruits and he's in jail for a long long time hopefully but they have a a a song off of their start something album i do believe it's called uh hold on a sec i I, it's either um i'm gonna screw this up don't Um, screw it up don't do it Hold on a second. Put this uh, in the back.
1: I can I can honestly tell you the last time I listened to Lost Prophets, to be honest, dude, it was like
0: yeah, it was like probably like a, a like a, probably two thousand four for me.
1: Yeah, the only song I could ever remember is like Rooftops. That's it.
0: Yeah, and then uh, yeah, that's uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, so it's burn burn. So the song burn burn by Lost Prophets strikes a uh, very very similar tone to the intro to Far's Mother Mary. So you know Jonah Matrangas uh, post rock sacto act yeah um, so the intros are identical if you listen to it and a lot of people online, I remember back in the day when the album came out were complaining very heavily but uh, lacanese juice is also a great example uh it, that would be an interesting uh court fight though if we watch those like cutlers versus uh live i would
1: just like to see like all those could ed kowalczyk bring back the rat tail to bring to court <laughs> i don't know if he can i don't know if he's in you know like a balding guy that he couldn't, that he just can't grow the hair or if he just shaves it anyway, but I want the rat tail back, even if he has to put on, like, extensions or some shit.
0: You know what? I saw them last September, and uh, he was fully bald still, but I think he could still do it, honestly. I think there's still a patch there in the back.
1: I saw Ed Kowalczyk solo uh, maybe seven years ago now at this point. Uh, the headliner of that of this like mini kind of like festival kind of thing was uh Flyleaf at the time and that was the <laughs> second time I I've seen Flyleaf three three times and uh two times they were amazing the third time with the new singer uh when she was doing her own thing instead of trying to you know copy Lacey Sturm it um it was better but like as far as I know, she's not a part of that band anymore anyway, and I don't even know what the hell's going on with them. But, uh, yeah.
2: yeah uh,
0: You're, you know, your source for all uh, Flyleaf related hot takes.
1: Yeah, I, I I love that fucking band, you know, straight up. But, uh, yeah, Ed Kowalczyk, he had problems during his entire set of, like, feedback and shit, and it was it was god awful. I hated
0: it i saw them so last fall it was the ult- ultimate tour with bush and our lady peace um uh, just a quick note rob i don't know if you saw music news today but there is a rumored <laughs> breaking benjamin uh, bush fear of a dead man tour out there and uh, if it's anywhere near me I'll, I'll see you there oh i will fucking be there with bells on are you kidding me <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I'm gonna try and bring this back uh, to the matter at hand, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's try this, right? Okay. Um, I would love, as I was saying before, to see a court test this, just due to the fact that um, we've seen so many high-profile cases, whether it be Dark Horse, or whether it would be uh, you know Robin Thicke, um that have sort of challenged the notion of what music is in certain ways. And I don't feel, nor do I know what uh, going forward um, what this looks like for continental uh, the continental United States. Um, Canada and then any other place where copyright uh, law exists in its different forms, right? Because a lot of Asia, for example, doesn't really have strong copyright laws. And you're you're just starting to see more of them. I mean, like you know, there's back and forth with this
1: Lizzo suit that you know is continuing to unfold. Uh, there was more stuff last week, uh, and then the the weekend and Ken, Kendrick Lamar are now being sued by Yeezayer for claiming that uh, they included part of uh, their song Sunrise and uh, their song Pray For Me on the Black Panther soundtrack. It's like, come on, guys. Like, enough is a fucking enough. Like, are we reaching the music industry fucking apocalypse here? Because between ticket prices, people suing each other endlessly, fucking, what, when is it going to be about the music again?
0: I feel like you are saying that, and then like uh, your left hand is on your notes, but your right hand has a lighter in the air.
1: Listen, I am lighting the way toward the fucking music. <laughs> we're on our um, way. Nobody can fucking stop us.
0: I feel like I accidentally tied together our new section uh, of, of this episode, uh, because the next article I want to talk about is uh, sort of about what you were saying before about Kendrick Lamar, Yes Air samples and things like that. So collage art has been a longstanding tradition when it comes to popular music. The Foundation of Rap Music, uh, one of the four pillars of hip-hop, was built on sampling existing records to create new works, right? So uh, it has an infamous-infamous history, for example, like Vanilla Ice was sued by Mick and Bowie for sampling Under Pressure for Ice Ice Baby. So uh, let's fast forward from the 80s to the 90s to, uh, you know... Uh, uh, Early 2004. So 16 years ago around this time, DJ Danger Mouse dropped the great album, a mashup album made up of Beatles' administration from the White Album and Jeezy's cappella vocals from the Black Album. What followed next was no less than an all-out public debate about copyright, ownership, artist rights, and more. So Rob, before we get into it, where were you when you first heard this?
1: I was, it wasn't even 2004. I think it was 2006. I stumbled upon it on a blog post. Maybe it was, like, Alternative Press or something like that. I was going through, like, what they had on their website, and, like, I was like, oh, what the hell is this? So, I downloaded uh, the free copies that they had at the time. I used a uh, torrent, you know, back in the day, because that's how we did him. things. Yep. That you're also talking to someone who used to uh, burn DVDs that he used to uh, rent from Netflix. So you know, I mean, I
0: had an enterprise, but uh, <laughs> as Jay Z said, I'm a businessman.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I uh, went back to the internet yesterday and I found <laughs> I re-downloaded this album because I'm like, man, I haven't heard it so long. It's like I'm not listening to a YouTube rip, so I uh, threw it on my iphone and man like there are some things that do not fucking work on this thing okay good i was i
0: was very scared that you're gonna say it's a magical tour de force like no it's
1: it's not but like the for its time and for what he was trying to do it's still a pretty remarkable achievement regardless i mean there are some really fucking annoying samples like i'm not a fan of his version of uh uh, dirt off your shoulder. It's no, fucking yeah. god awful. And uh, the sample that he uses for Encore is not good, but... No, and uh, uh,
0: most of Allure, two for me, doesn't hit well, I find.
1: Yeah, but uh, uh, what more can I say? December 4th, Moment of Clarity, those are fucking bangers. Uh, I love fucking love those. There's no way that an album like this could even exist. Like, Brian Burton got uh, essentially a cease and desist letter in the mail. In this day and age, you know, they would so, automatically- Just to clarify,
0: Brian Burden is a uh, danger mouse to anyone dangerous. who doesn't yeah. know,
1: Yeah. And today, he would just be taken to court, even though he hasn't, you know, sold anything. And, like, his argument was, well, I'm giving it away for free. I'm not selling it. But this album catapulted his career into projects that, you know, we're still talking about today. Gnarls Barkley... For one, um, he did that album with Karen uh, O last year. That was really good. Love that album. Um, I- I'm gonna be honest, Brian. I I, uh, I went to eBay and I bought a vinyl copy of. This did album. you really? Yeah. I did. Wow.
0: Okay. How like obviously bootleg. How much did you pay for it? And, like, so was it new, used, and like it's what brand were comfortable? New. Okay, and what were you comfortable spelling? Uh,
1: it was like 33 bucks. Oh,
0: that's not too bad. Yeah. No,
1: it's not too bad for a bootleg copy of something that you you know. Was- he pressed, I, I think he made, like, what, 3,000 CDs and gave yeah, them out exactly. to friends and producers. So, like, I mean, it's cool to fucking see projects like this. You'll never see another project like this because of the way, you know, copyright laws are and in the in the way that bands just sue people willy-nilly. And, I mean, like, the thing is, is, like, at the time, every single person except for EMI we're cool with this. Like there were members of the Beatles that were cool with it. Fucking Dame dash was cool with it.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing is that they put out the acapellas due to the fact that they wanted mashups and remixes to happen from black album um, assets. Right. So it, yeah. it's this weird thing. I have to disagree with you though, that work like this can be created though, not attributed properly in this day and age, I think. So I think that like, while um uh, an album like this can be created, I don't necessarily know if uh, attaching a name to it is legally prudent. Right. Well,
1: If you're talking about, like, rap, because I think rap and hip-hop play it a little safer than any other genres. Because if you look at the credits on songs on a rap, hip-hop album, there are so many goddamn songwriters because they're including every single artist that wrote a song that they sampled. So,
0: if you're talking about hip-hop, yeah. If you're talking about... um, Maybe. Well, here's a good example, right? So, example, uh, uh, Frank Ocean, uh, American Wedding, right? Uh, samples heavily from uh, the Eagles Hotel California, and most of the Eagles were yep. not happy about that one. Right. But uh, Frank Ocean was claiming because it wasn't a commercial product or project that he wasn't directly benefiting off of it. But the the devil's the devil's sort of like a uh, prejudice argument there is that uh, he is benefiting off of it by going out and playing live.
1: Yeah, that's... Uh... I could see that, but, like, how many fucking artists do that? Like, there are so many artists that do covers all the fucking time. I guarantee you those artists don't get
0: fucking cuts of whatever bands are, you know, whatever bands are doing live. They don't. Are you, are you talking... Well, I mean, so what happens there is a lot of the times the venues will um, pay a uh, usually a fee uh, mm-hmm. annually for that sort of thing. So at least... Uh, is there is in theory money going towards uh like uh the major songwriter uh coalitions out there uh i'm trying to think of the canadian one but i know for a fact that like venues had to pay a certain fee in order to cover covers for the year
1: well oh, that's interesting i didn't know that
0: well um well shit that's a, <laughs> yeah that's i'm trying to think of what the uh canadian sorry let me clean this up because it's gonna bother me Canadian recording artists cover because i remember having to look into this at one point what did you have to look into it for oh when i was managing bands i was like okay what do we have to do um if ever we do live covers at a proper venue
1: gotcha okay so this was back in the days when brian was booking
0: shows okay there goes so in canada uh how do the cover bands get away with copyright infringement um uh so so can which is the canadian uh Society of composers authors and music publishers um has uh, licensing tariffs that they charge onto music venues um on an annual basis. Okay. So in the states it's ASCAP and BMI.
1: Gotcha. All right. Well, yeah. That makes sense cuz I mean like I just looked at uh Widespread Panic is doing a uh they did a doing a five-date run at the Beacon Theater which is the uh, first concert I ever went to was to see widespread panic at the beacon theater, which is cool to kind of see them do like a residency. Now there are some bands yeah. that do it like the almond brothers do it at the beacon. And, uh, so here's I,
0: the wrinkle in the whole kind of situation, right? So venues cover that, but like, for example, a band like widespread panic or another band that wants to put out a, a, a live release of that. Then at that point you have to bring in the songwriters. Um, but it's weird because a lot of them are on demand, like released right afterwards officially. So I don't, I'm not sure if they've like acquired a license or uh, been able to sort of like work out the payment plan ahead of time, knowing they're going to cover certain songs. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that makes very, very fucking confusing. (laughs) Like never, never like, unless you're like super passionate about this, uh, you the listener, not you Rob, but unless you want to, uh, uh, music copyright and all that is super fucking confusing.
1: It is super fucking confusing. And I think that, the courts just finally need to step in and say, okay, we need an easier way of doing this, Uh, you know, because we're, we're getting to the point where it's, you know, it stifles creation. It totally stifles creation, which in an era where more and more shit is becoming homogenous, I think if you like loosen your copyright laws, you're going to see a lot more, You know, diversity in what you're listening to, diversity in what is on the Billboard 100 or the Spotify 200 or whatever the hell metric that you're using, unless it's, you know, for a specific genre. But even then, I mean, every time that somebody tries to do something different and say, like, country, you know, the purists... Throw their arms up in the air and say, "Oh, they're not playing country music on country radio anymore." <laughs> and it's just you just want to you just want to slap them because they don't take into consideration that music is this evolving force. You know, first and foremost, yeah, it relies heavily on nostalgia these days. You're, what you're going to find is, and and what the Rolling Stone article m- makes a great point on is like every trend has about a twenty year time period. So, uh, realistically, I think like the 80s boom was a little late Mm -hmm. because you didn't get it till the 2010s, you know, with. But but even then, like mid 2010s, right? Yeah, mid 2010s. I mean, it kind of starts with Bruno Mars. I mean, uh, Taylor Swift did her thing. Um,. Uh, Paramore did their thing on their last album in 2017, I think it was. After Laughter, which is a phenomenal record, such a good record. It um, is. I was
0: listening to. I was actually listening to it this morning.
1: Yeah, it's uh, man. Fake happy is like one of those like yeah. songs that is just like f- like fuck you to like everybody. Like I, I am who I am. I, I'll deal with things the way I deal with things, and I ain't gonna do it the way you want it. So fucking A just a uh, just a banger yeah that, bang that first
0: half right uh hard times uh, rose colored boy mm-hmm. uh, uh i'm just naming these so that we can add them to the playlist obviously yeah uh,
1: n- yeah name them off name them off you Yeah. Know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, yeah, I, I do think you re- you raise such an excellent point that the Copyright Term Extension Act in the States needs to be revised, right? Because um, c- collaborative doesn't mean the same thing it did 60, 70 years ago, right? Uh, nope. The terms popular music uh, have evolved in the decades since, right? And I wanted to bring up the idea and the notion of uh, – so two things, firstly. Uh, one, I think uh, infamous uh, mashup artist Girl Talk, right, made a career out of masterfully taking snippets from a dozen or more songs per track, to create collages that you cannot hear anywhere else. But once again, like tempting the fates so much with this kind of stuff.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, even like, imagine if like back in 04. because you know, this was Oh four, Oh five. I forget exactly. No, nah, I think it was Oh uh, five. When Jay-Z and Lincoln Park uh, were dude, doing collision dude, course, dude,
0: dude, this, th- that was literally my second fucking point. Yeah. Like, like that, <laughs> so- that November, was
1: November two thousand four. Yeah, okay, yeah. So it's it's really about the same time that, you know, you had fucking um the Gray Album and
0: everything. So this so. this is my theory, right? And I wanted to present this to you, right? The Gray Album hits early uh, 2004, right? Jay Z sees the response. He sees Grace Tuesday, right, where all these different uh, music websites put up the album in defiance of, uh, you know, uh, Burton cease and desist, uh, get you know, being sent to the mail. And so I wonder, like, did, did Rockefeller, Jay Z, Dame see, uh the attention this had gathered, and then decided to actually do a proper um, mashup type of project to uh, generate income from? Because it seems at times, like, it's a cash grab, but it's also, like, a really strangely uh, good product of its time?
1: Yeah, I think so. And, I mean, like, if you think about this time, and, I mean, I think it was, what, like, when did he do that show with the Roots, that unplugged show with the Roots? Was uh,
0: 2003.
1: 2002-2003. Yeah, like, he was, like, fuck, like, Jay-Z at this time was, like, doing these amazing fucking projects and shit, man, and, uh... Yeah, like... I think he, like, harnessed creativity better than anybody at that time, and fucking, I think that Grey album, I think the Grey album definitely set up what Collision Course would be, and I mean, you had, before that, like, reanimation, they were, yeah. like, Linkin Park was, you know, doing shit with other artists, too, which was, I, I fully believe that reanimation is probably their most underrated release
0: dude it's-, it's 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 honestly one of the best uh remix albums that i've ever heard which you compare it to like lynn biscuit put one out um in a similar time frame right and it just mm. it wasn't uh, good at all like yeah they put out new old songs in 2001 it wasn't a great album at all like there was frill beats on there that sounded super weird but this actually felt like a brand new re-envisioning of what hybrid theory was more or less
1: yeah exactly. I mean that version of points of authority fucking bangs harder than the original it's fucking <laughs> It's fucking amazing like uh i i wasn't totally you know on board with that version of in the end but it's not a bad version i, well, I, don't I mind mean,
0: i't i also think that like they went out for pedigree right so they they yeah. grabbed the guy from Orgy. uh they grabbed uh Josh Abrams they grabbed Stephen Carper from uh, Depth Jones but at the same time they grabbed uh Kali uh, tuna from uh, Jurassic Five, uh, Evidence, Fairmont, like all of these heavy hitters in the mm-hmm. indie rap world that actually, I felt, um, brought something new to the table that you don't necessarily see in other albums. And it was a great big gamble to bring in a lot of these uh, you know, indie slash major um, artists all in the same place. But I felt like it was so good.
1: Yeah, it was. It, and it felt like fucking organic, man, which was really good. And like... I think the last great thing that I liked that Aaron Lewis did that I really enjoyed was that fucking version of Crawling. Yes. You know, that, yes. That's a pretty fucking amazing version of that song.
0: I can't believe we're here in 2020 agreeing with this, but yeah, Reanimation is definitely an underrated um, album to listen to. I'd suggest everyone take a minute after we're done here and go check that out, right? I think that like, we, everyone owes it to themselves.
1: Yeah, they do. It's It's a fucking phenomenal release. Just go fucking like first thing you need to do is actually go watch the points of authority video because it's fucking incredible
0: <laughs> also um uh they teamed up with the executioners right for the yeah. it's going down uh yep. single two which was just baller yeah it was uh, djz trip and chester bennington for the walking dead like that um, i'm sad that, that band went the way it did uh there are greater later albums and there are lesser like later albums like the last one, unfortunately, shouldn't have been marketed as a Linkin Park album necessarily. I don't know how you feel about that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think once we got, like, Minutes to Midnight, we knew, like, Linkin Park was a different band. They were starting to become a different band. That album still, you know, it wasn't bad. The album after that, eh. but, uh, you know, their, their releases are kind of mixed after after Meteora
0: yeah Thousand Suns wasn't good but honestly Living Things was kind of pretty decent to go listen to so I suggest yeah. uh, you know anyone out there want to listen to that and then also uh, weirdly enough of course is they put a recharge right after that with I, I, I do believe it has a pusher T verse on there somewhere mm-hmm. so yeah
1: um, basically we're just loading this fucking playlist <laughs> with <they> Lincoln Park.
0: <laughs> I'm rubbing my hands. Okay, Rob, let's let's end this and go talk about our, our main topic of this episode before I, I dive down into an even deeper hole of remixes.
1: <laughs> yeah, man,
0: let's do it. Welcome back to the Coda, and we are going to be entering the main topic of this episode. Uh, Rob, you and I are both uh, uh, music enjoyers and music people, and uh, we understand the history of music. For as long as there's been popular music, there's also been the careful policing curation of music from the removal of music sheets that contained the so-called devil's triad court production centuries ago to the assembly trial brought on by two live crews as nasty as they want to be the careful as well as the careful curation of the bbc's playlist and occasional slip up um including the infamous frankie goes to hollywood's relaxed debacle we live in an age of careful push and pull between artistic freedom and the boundaries of what society considers obscene As we continue riding this digital wave towards more self-release music, the notion of censorship disappears a bit as we take out those traditional pillars like terrestrial radio and physical record stores that acted as de facto gatekeepers. But let us look back upon a time when there were these gatekeepers and sort of a larger institution at play and uh, more parents advocate groups getting angry about stupid shit. Uh, So let's talk about band music, Rob. Uh, So I'm going to throw to you now for your first pick of this episode.
1: For my first band song, I wanted to talk about Neil Young's Cortez the Killer. Uh, For decades, he has been touting and boasting that the song was banned in Spain, because at the time, they were allegedly under the dictatorship of Francisco Franco. And the problem was, and I discovered this on a Reddit post, is that the... Um, month that Zuma, the album that Cortez the Killer comes from, was released was the month that Francisco Franco died. So there may have been some banning of the song, but the thing is, is like he never released it as a single. I heard the song a lot on uh, the uh, classic rock radio station that we have up in my neck of the woods but uh it's not like it was getting uh, a lot of airplay i think back in the day uh but in spain they did change the name of the song to cortez cortez which you know kind of kind of figured but uh a few (laughs) years ago a few years ago rolling stone actually fact checked uh neil young on the song because he claimed that it's kind of one of his oldest songs. He wrote the lyrics after, I think, it like studying for a history class or something like that, doing homework or something, and like they learned about you know what Cortez did to the Aztec you know people and shit like that, and uh, they they called him out on some of the shit. It was great, but it, uh, ultimately. Uh,
0: So you're kind of walking back the uh, claim that Rolling Stone may be dog shit journalism a little bit? Yeah,
1: a little bit. Tiny bit. Their reviews reviews are dog shit. Let's just, you know, (laughs) keep that there. Uh, But um, I uh, ended up tabling this song, and instead I wanted to talk about Neil Young's indictment of corporate-sponsored music, This Notes for You. You know, I'm a reporter. I'm just... Describing what's going on, the way I see it, I don't have any answers. No one really seems to have the answer to what's going on. But you know, I, I mean, I just like to point out things that seem to be seem wrong. You know, that seem wrong. I it's just funny to see all the money being spent on advertising when homeless people are sitting there. And specifically, we're talking about the music video from 1988. So in 1988, Neil Young released his 16th studio album, This Notes for You. And it's one of Young's, I would say, stranger albums, like not as weird as like trans necessarily, but it's very bluesy, but it also contains like a horn section, which is not a very Neil Young kind of thing. But Listening to it today, it definitely sounds like a record of its time. It it, it sounds like a record from the '80s, but uh, the horns from that era just made it seem like everybody, like a lot of the horns used in songs, seemed like everybody was trying to rip off what Clarence Clemens was doing in the E Street Band and doing it rather poorly. Uh, nobody could fucking nobody could fucking play that sax like Clarence Clemens. Let's be honest, but um, it. MTV in the eighties refused to air music videos that contain lyrics and images that featured commercial products. So the music video for this notes for you is very much like a spoof on, uh, corporate sponsored rock. So you got references to Coke and Pepsi, which, you know, some people, some artists had, uh, deals with Michael Jackson, had a deal with Pepsi and, in the music video, we get the recreation of the infamous story where uh, Michael Jackson burned his hair during a fucking commercial shoot. It's pretty great. The opening of the video is a mockery of a commercial that Eric Clapton was in to advertise Michelob Ultra. It it's pretty fucking great. But uh, despite the fact that this was obvious satire, it's not like they were openly advertising for what the products that he was mentioning MTV refused to air the video and the general manager of MTV and vh1 at the time Lee Master stated quote I must admit I feel awkward defending our decision because I happen to think it's a fantastic video everyone in programming loved it it's spectacular and it's very funny but we had two corporate problems first our attorneys advised us against playing it because it of its use of the likeness of Michael Jackson and Spuds McKenzie and uh, Madonna could leave us open to trademark infringement charges. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Since then, Warner records legal department has offered to indemnify us against any claims, but our attorneys still felt that might not be enough protection. Like they're literally telling you that they're not going to sue you. It's fine, but you still (laughs) refused to fucking play the video. The joke, though, was ultimately on MTV uh, because um, in 1989, this Notes for you won the music video of the Year Award.
0: <laughs> Damn right?
1: And uh, we're, we're going to include a, a, a clip right here of uh, it's Michael Hutchins reading off the winner. It's great. <laughs> and the winner is. Are
2: you ready? For the best video of the year, <laughs> yeah, Neil Young, this note's for you.
1: <laughs> hey, Neil's not here. Funny that. He's at uh, Palladium in New York, and he's uh, on the video somewhere. Uh...
0: You know, don't want no cash, Rob. Don't want no money. Ain't got no stash, Rob. This note's for you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that.
0: (laughs) The thing too is that you know, uh, uh, I feel like this would have fallen under parody, right? Like under fair use provisions very easily. But of course, MTV didn't want to piss off. uh, You know, it's source of revenue, aka like the people who pay for commercial time, right? So
1: yeah, exactly. And you you know. They've always hidden behind that. Oh, we don't. We don't want to be sued for infringement. But it's never been about infringement. Let's be. No, honest.
0: not all. Not all. It's a. It's a chicken shit argument.
1: Yeah, it it really is, but I mean, the joke was on MTV, Neil Young ultimately wasn't there to accept the award, but great fuck you to MTV. I think they lined themselves up for that themselves, so...
0: And I also great. feel like this kind of kickstarted his, like, second period of, like, his, like, renaissance almost that led into the early 90s, and his work with Pearl Jam, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, because, I mean, like, you had, what, Freedom after that, and... Yeah, Ragged uh, Glory. Uh, Ragged Glory, Sleeps with the Angels, which is, like... Probably the saddest Neil Young record because it's inspired by Kurt Cobain's death. And then you had Mirror Ball, which, yeah. for the most part, there it's a fucking banger record. There are some songs that aren't, but uh, from those sessions, you get two of the best Pearl Jam B sides: Long Road and I Got Shit. two, yep. two fucking great songs. Uh, or, one uh, of
0: uh, one of which I heard live. Yes. <laughs> which one? I got shit. Uh, Rob, isn't it pronounced like I did?
1: Uh, We're not censoring ourselves
0: here, Brian. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that is a great pick. Uh, Rob, have you ever been in a situation where your mumbling may have caused the FBI to show up at your door?
1: No, but I am going to start mumbling a little more to see if it'll happen.
0: (laughs) Okay, cool. Uh, Because I want to talk about the Kingsman's 1963 cover of Chuck Berry's Louie Louie, which was originally released in 1955. So on April 6th. Of 1963, the Portland, Oregon crew managed to record their cover for 50 bucks at a local studio and unleashed holy hell onto the world. So they took Barry's um, sort of straight up, um, you know, uh, blues rock and roll standard and made it uh, livelier, you know, more jumpier, kinetic. Uh, and due to the limitations of the local recording studio, uh, much muddier and more dangerous sounding. Oh, yeah. So some of this uh, uh, sound can be attributed to the lack of prep time. So they had very little warning when local DJ Ken Chase booked them for that faithful session the day before they were supposed to show up to the studio because he was sort of de facto managing them. He owned a venue and he decided, hey, the kids are really reacting to this. I'd love to put something out there. So singer and guitarist Jackie Eli was forced to lean back and sing uh, into a microphone that was suspended from the ceiling uh, some feet away. Right. So it, he says it was more yelling than singing because I was trying to be heard over all the instruments something interesting that i didn't know either is that eli was wearing braces at the time of the performance <laughs> further compounding his infamously slurry words yeah so the fbi uh, then launched a 31 month uh, investigation to the matter <laughs> <laughs> um, spurred on by mostly angry and confused parents right uh, who are sending actual snail mail into the fbi um so people have uh, requested through um information access information requests um uh the reporting and the fbi notes on this and uh, there's like a bunch of like parent letters complaining about this song and like that the fact that like the nation needs to do something about this
1: Fucking A. Like, this is typical FBI bullshit from back in the day. We don't have anything better to do, so let's investigate, like, a fucking musical artist for months.
0: So, Rob, this is the thing I need to to share with you in your mind, palace. Okay, you ready for this? Um, Picture a room full of FBI agents trying to decipher the lyrics. (laughs) Because that actually happened. So um, uh, some of the documents obtained uh, contain what the FBI thought some of the lyrics may have been, including every day and night, I play with my thing, fuck your girl, all kinds of ways. (laughs) Or at night at 10, I lay her again, fuck you, girl-o, all the way. So literally the FBI was just sitting around for months at a time trying to transcribe um, what they thought they heard off of this muddled home, you know, home-style recording. Because like, this is not, you know, know, Abbey Road Studios here.
1: Right, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's just a shitty studio setup. Uh,
0: so not only did the FBI involved again involved the FCC in the states also got involved, hitting up Louis Louis distributor Juan Records and asking them whether, even though unobjectionable lyrics were used in recording the song, there was improper motivation on the part of the singer or singers in making the recorded lyrics so unintelligible as to give rise to reports that they were obscene.
1: It always comes down to an intention, like. This is like copyright lawsuits all over again and trying to discern whether somebody fucking heard a song before they, you know, wrote their own song. And it's a really fucking dumb bullshit (laughs) fucking thing. Like, this is typical FBI goddamn bullshit right here. This is this is edgelord FBI just trying to fucking (laughs) sitting around a room circle jerking, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Okay, definitely wearing trilbies. Yeah,
0: definitely. <laughs> I love how you went off about that. It's so fucking dumb. So, Rob, you'd agree that the the, the song has like, since then enjoyed a notorious presence, uh, presence in pop culture because it's like the cheapest way of getting heat.
1: Yeah, it is. It's like, uh, it's cheap heat, as they call it in the wrestling.
0: Do you want to know? Yeah, it's like naming the city you're in, right? Yeah, pretty much. Do you want to know the ironic thing, though? What? While there were no sexual acts being lyrically, lyrically depicted, there was still a swear word underneath it all. Was there. So, uh, Drummer Leeson later admitted that he healed fuck after screwing up a drum fill and dropping a drum at around uh, the 54-second mark of the record. And I made my wife listen to this, like, eight or ten times last night. And you can hear someone yell something at that point, and it could be the F word.
1: Hot damn. Well, I, I mean, at least, you know, there's something. But, like, I, I did the FBI even note that? they even notice uh, it no not at all that's of the best that's the,
0: the most ironic and best part of all this of all the documents i was able to find online there's not uh, a mention of the idea that that was the swear word in in question so you know uh, it's fine
1: and again like these group of fbi agents sitting in a fucking room remind me of a bunch of people in a fucking courtroom listening to a song not knowing a goddamn thing and trying to determine you know what's going on and yeah. Yeah. like it's fucking hilarious. It's fucking dumb. It's a fucking waste of taxpayer dollars. I'll tell you that.
0: Well, that's that's the thing I wanted to bring up is I would love to know the budget, you know, or like money spent on this specific incident.
1: Yeah, I do too. Like, give. Can we get a FOIA request and to get these numbers? <laughs> I want to know.
0: Yeah. I want to know too. That's yeah. Let's let's fucking do this, man. You yeah, I am not. I can't. But you can.
1: I'm going to talk to you know some lawyers I know. Okay. And, uh, we'll Circle see the if wagons. We can- yeah, we'll see if we can uh, figure this out.
0: <laughs> is that the biggest misuse of funds that you've heard of uh this today? Like I just mean, today specifically?
1: T- t- today, yeah. I mean, we did have the uh, A-tip program, but we won't bring that up on this no, show. No, let's not. <laughs> that
0: that is our that is your main bread butter.
1: Yeah, we don't we don't need to go there, but uh yeah, this this definitely sounds like a waste. Uh, and I mean, like the government is not opposed to wasting money. They've no. wasted plenty of money.
0: Rob. Yeah. What's your next pick?
1: So, for my next pick, I have chosen The Who's My Generation, mostly because it was banned for a really dumb fucking reason. Now, in the in 1965, The Who were fucking bringing it to the table. They were fucking rocking harder than The Beatles and The Stones. This is before, you know, The Beatles kind of swung into, like... Uh,
0: a studio only mode.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like we were, they were a couple of years away from that, and it's even before fucking, uh, you know, Revolver, and and they were, you know, getting a harder, edgier sound, which you know for the Beatles is not really, fuck, like they didn't have a hard, edgy sound. And neither did really the Rolling Stones, but they were all playing it safe, doing like <clears throat> a lot of pop rock covers and shit like that, but. uh the who were starting to gain a reputation as a band that had an attitude they fucking wrecked their equipment every after every performance of my generation it, it was like a spectacle to fucking see and You know, this song itself has fucking attitude, and, you know, it features a number of strange things that bands weren't really doing at the time, like, there's bass solos from John Entwistle, Keith Moon's drumming has always been just, like, iconic and sloppy all over the place, Pete Towns' guitar sounds out of tune the entire time, which is great, and if you want a perfect encapsulation of the song, and we'll include this in the uh, show notes, head on over to YouTube and watch their performance on the Smothers Brothers. It's fucking incredible. It's, you know, the Who being funny and then being just like these creators of chaos at the end of their performance. The reason the song was banned is not because of the raucous destruction. It's not because uh, it was as if Roger Daltrey was going to fly into an F-bomb because of uh the issue that we'll get to at hand here in a second but it's because the fucking song contains stuttering the bbc initially banned the song because they thought it was offensive to stutterers and then pirate radio stations started to play the song and they it started to gain popularity until the bbc said okay let's just let's just play it like just just throw it on there and it ultimately became like a number 2 song in the uk it was immensely popular. It's still immensely popular today, and like they were trying to do something different. Like if you talk about artists of that time, young artists, like trying to do something different, they're bringing something a little different to the table. Uh, The things that I mentioned about this song, and I mean like the, the stuttering that he includes in that track is like, you know, this is our generation. Our generation's a little bit different from yours, and like We don't give a fuck. We're just going to destroy everything. So, fuck y'all. We're just fucking rocking, bringing down the house, all that good shit. So, I mean, this is a song that ultimately became the anthem for a generation. So, definitely just kind of weird for the reason that it was banned.
0: Yeah, it definitely is one of the more, uh, like, secondary reasons why you would ban a song.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, like, the fact that you think that Daltrey is going to fly into you know, a fuck or something like that is kind of more of a
0: reason. So, yeah, like, given that, like, let me ask you a question, right? Do you think the stuttering was a bullshit reason? Uh, You know, seeing as though, like, this song uh, has a certain anthemic quality to it that, um, uh, you know, the stuffed shirts back then probably wouldn't have enjoyed.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, in a way, he's kind of trying to censor himself so that, like, he can get away with it. You know what he's trying to say without really saying it so it's as if the performance is him trying to stop himself from saying it which is fucking great it's yeah that's a very interesting
0: yeah it's a very interesting take on that because yeah back then you uh you know you didn't have dj premiere uh doing a radio edit of your rap song with you know sound effects
1: right yeah exactly yeah
0: uh that's a great bag it's a very interesting uh the reason is to i feel like it almost like circumvents uh, uh censorship in a like a very interesting kind of way
1: it it does. It's a little precocious, you know, which is nice. And it's also a song that gets people talking. Like, I, I at least back in the day, I imagine it got people talking. It's like, oh, my God, is he going to say the F word? Like, no, but eh, he, he kind of alluded to it, which was which is great. But, like, the combination of all those things, the, the bass solos, the drumming, Pete Townsend's nearly out of tune guitar, it, it is this message, the statement where they're basically saying, move over, this ain't your mommy and daddy's rock and roll. We're here right. to fucking fuck shit up.
0: Right. Yeah, I agree with that assessment. It's a really, really good read on that.
1: And and the funny thing is, is like they still did it with those fucking frilly outfits, which was amazing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, I don't even want to know how much they paid in a lifetime for all that broken equipment.
1: Uh, what the hell was I watching? And you remember... Back in the late 90s, VH1 had that special, like, it was, like, the most shocking romance in rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, Kurt Cobain's suicide was number one or something like that. But, like, the Who destroying their equipment, they said it was, like, millions of dollars worth. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck.
0: Okay. Oh, boy. So, Brian... Uh, Brian, yes. what's, your, what's your next choice here? Bro? All right, Rob, let us take a ride back about three decades to the early 90s. Ice-T, yep. uh, fresh off of New Jack City, had a pretty, a pretty decent rap and acting career going on. So he and childhood friend and uh, body count guitarist Ernie C decided to join forces to offer an incendiary take on rock and roll, creating a rap-rock hybrid that white kids have been trying to emulate uh, since the group has come out. Um, the song I want to talk about is uh, Body Count's Cop Killer back in the day when I worked
1: at Ames, the Ames department store that I've talked about before, I worked in the electronics section. Like, Ames was basically like a mini Target in a way. It it was like, you know, your your typical department store. And uh, during its closing, because uh, they closed down in 2002, I think it was, the guy that was there doing the uh, store closing actually had a... a copy of the CD that had the song cop killer on it. And he let me borrow it and rip it.
0: <laughs> oh, nice. Yes. So yeah. So a large part of the group's infamy beyond Ice's involvement in the project is due to one song, uh, found on original pressings of their self-titled long player a four-minute, nine-second track called Cop Killer. So, uh, obviously, a very incendiary take on dealing with uh, the police um, uh, from someone who's had problems with law enforcement in the past, right? Mm-hmm. So, this, so, the song found opposition by establishment: savage uh, George Bush, the first one, Dan Quayle, Tipper Gore, AL, had their baseball bats, baseball bats out for this one. So, uh, Cleat, the combined law enforcement associations of Texas called for a boycott of all products by Time Warmer, which is the parent company of uh, you know, Body Count's record company, in order to secure the removal of the song and uh, the album from stores. So fraternal police orders soon quickly joined in. There was talk of police picketing a Time Warner shareholder meeting. One of the most surreal moments is, um, and there's a video of this, is Charlton Heston reading lyrics from "Cop Killer" and uh, another Body Count song, "KKK Bitch," uh, at a shareholder meeting. So,
1: <laughs> like, you know what the the amazing thing would have been? Because like you you remember how. Uh, in 2017, when Kendrick Lamar re- released "Damn," and like he had those portions from Ro- Geraldo Rivera, and then, like uh, one of the first songs on that thing, oh, I would have been. <laughs> fucking would have been the greatest troll if they had taken <laughs> fucking charles N- charlton hesson reading those and putting it into a song it would have been great
0: so uh i'm gonna read now from uh, the 1992 rolling stone cover story uh, august 1992 all about uh, so ice is on the cover looking tough he's dressed in a cop's uniform so uh the uh author asks so how does it feel to get dissed by the president and i says it lets you know how small this country is maybe i underestimate underestimate my juice but there's people out there with nuclear bombs people with armies and the president has time to sit up and get into it with me but i'm fully aware that the president's still has no idea who I am. He has advisors, people with their ears to the street. They're listening to everything that's going on and reaching for straws, especially during a presidential race. I guess it's something I'll remember the rest of my life. Very few people have their names said by the president, especially in anger. It makes me feel good, like I haven't been just standing on a street corner yelling with nobody listening all the time.
1: As that was the moment that Ice got hired on uh, Law and Order right
0: there. <laughs> dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was just renewed for another two seasons, apparently. Yeah, holy fuck. That show yeah. is unstoppable. Yeah. Uh it's uh it's it's beaten the original Law and Order, right? It's like the most successful one in the franchise right now. Yep. Uh yeah, who knows how that's gonna go, right? So um Uh, So of Ice's own volition, the song was actually removed from subsequent pressings uh, because he didn't want to cause too too many problems. He decided uh, to sort of, uh, you know, distance himself a bit and create less headaches. But uh, alongside the album's reissue, Warner Brothers also uh, sent out Cop Killer as a free single, which I thought was very interesting.
1: Yeah, that's a really cool fucking move, which uh, good good on them for fucking doing that because like... For one moment, they didn't want to stifle artistic freedom. Good for them.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, they also probably saw dollar signs, right? Yeah, they did. So uh, Ice, in an interview with CBC News World 15 years ago, uh, he says, I'm singing in the first person as a character who's fed up with police brutality. I ain't never killed no cop. I felt like it a lot of times, but I never did. If you believe that I'm a cop killer, you believe David Bowie is an astronaut. <laughs> which I thought was like a great line.
1: <laughs> like he's a very uh, like Ice is a very fucking articulate dude. dude like he's a also very highly quotable like Yeah, he's a, he's a very fucking smart dude. He's very aware of everything. So like just fucking amazing. Very precocious in the way that he handles himself and in the way that he handled this entire thing. So, you know, fucking Ice T man. He's just fucking great. <laughs>
0: um so speaking of law and order he was interviewed um by vice in 2017 all about the 25th anniversary of this and he said i don't hate all cops i've been playing a cop on tv for 18 years right i was younger (laughs) on the street and breaking the law we didn't hate the cops but consider them our opponents who we had to outsmart of course i have a hatred for racist people but i hate them where whether they're cops or not cops are human beings and when they take that oath they don't become supernatural there are good ones and bad ones a cop can save your life and a cop can take your life but you could say that of anyone
1: yeah yeah fuck
0: and then in the same interview, he was asked, like, what do you think of the song's legacy? And he said, the song was a protest record, just like a protest record from the 60s. It was meant to say, we are done with police brutality. And I think it stands today that people are done with it. But it's also a reminder that power is easily corruptible, right? So, uh you know, uh, one large part about what I think makes the song so, quote unquote, dangerous to the establishment of the course at the time was its appearance right before the Rodney King, Rodney King LA rides. So yeah. uh, the song sort of like becoming a, a type of like unofficial anthem almost. And, you know, a lot of people were uh, living through that moment, especially there, um, were just finally super upset you know and the song being out there sort of uh, uh amplified that message a lot
1: yeah it did fuck man it, it, we don't even talk about this song really anymore
0: no not even like he still performs it like body count is putting on a new album uh like two or three months from now it's going to be fucking great they just put out a new single called bum rush y'all should check it out um uh, something else i'd like to sort of draw attention to is i've seen this in a couple of interviews ice has said that um a lot of the people in the establishment the president dan Quayle, tipper gore have referred to this as a rap song right a rap being a coded reference to black culture so this was an easy marker for those in power to hammer on, you know, at a time when the crack epidemic was making its way through there, and uh, sort of demonize the black community in general. And this was just another notch in that sort of like a weird, um, uh, you know, anti-black sentiment that a lot of people were trying to create.
1: Yeah, and fuck, like, <laughs> like it, it, look how far we've like the, that community has come. Like, I mean, you go from that to a song like all right which has mm. become an anthem fucking
0: yeah i agree with that yeah. i um yeah i also feel like there's a real, not i don't want to say like a relaxed but a, a more appropriate response to um a lot of lyrical content uh you know from the quote unquote you know establishment in politics
1: yeah i agree uh, especially now like with the exception of like Geraldo Rivera nobody gives a shit about Geraldo Rivera anyway <laughs> so like it, it's when people go on these kind of political figures go on like tv or social media and they start talking about that shit like their ability to complain about that shit comes from uh privilege so absolutely like, fuck don't waste your time fucking put it toward the issues that need solving period uh,
0: yeah i think that's a really good <laughs> way of uh framing this uh, especially in 2020 like yeah. come on guys
2: yeah 100 percent and you formed a heavy metal band with Body Count, right? Yeah, so when the OG album came out, we debuted Body Count on that record. Because I remember Cop Killer vividly when that came out. It obviously met with a lot of controversy. Well, they played it up like we did it as a result of Rodney King. Right. But really, we 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 could have preempted Rodney King. Mm-hmm. You know, the record had been out almost a year and a half before the, before the controversy hit. I walked into the studio singing Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads. And my man, my drummer was like, man, they need a cop killer. I'm like, why? He said, so these cops will know they can't get away with what they doing. So I'm like, what if a guy snapped Mm -hmm. because of police brutality? Of course, by the time the press got it, I was Mm -hmm. replying to Rodney King. I was putting out all this stuff. I was trying to get people to do it. It was such a, you know, (laughs) they they just it. Completely spun. Completely spun. It crazy. Now, Coco, were you aware of Ice-T at this point? No,
1: that's the thing. I didn't even know who he was. And I, and I, I heard
0: his name. But yeah. I couldn't even pick him out, honestly. Right. Yeah, and that's why when we met and his, his friend yeah. and his friend introduced me to him, I didn't really know what he looked like. I didn't know what he was about. I didn't know what he had done, and uh, we really met from ground zero. Like, when we dated, yeah. he had to teach me what he did.
1: Because he changes. So he yeah. morphs. He changes into conservativeness, yeah. into rock star, right. into...
2: We're uh, in all these different hats. Going uh, in the hood. Uh, yeah. I'm
1: teaching kids. you got to
2: appreciate the irony, though, of, of uh, like, playing cop killer now and you playing a cop for 15 years or so now, right? Well, I mean, it, it throws a lot of people off. They don't get it. But I tell him I was acting on the record. I mean, I didn't. I never killed no cops. I'm not been there to kill no cops. Right. It's, it's, they're both characters. So looking back, any regrets? I don't really have any regrets. Uh, Law and Order definitely was the smartest move I ever made, mm-hmm. because the music business changed tremendously in those years that I've been on that show, and what I did was I jumped to another vehicle. My fans that were fans of me matured. Now they have kids and they watch the show. So now after being out of the loop for so long, they're hungry. They're like, I need to make another record, make another record, make another record. I want to show my kids what it sounds like. So I'm like, okay, this 15 years has cleaned my palate and it's made me hungry for the stage. Yeah. So I'm about to return, you know, and hit them in the head with that hardcore that they missed. So I'm ready.
0: I wanted to cap things off, Rob, by uh, songs that were not banned um, uh, from the radio, but songs that were suggested to be taken offline uh, for a time. So there was a Clear Channel memorandum, and of course, Clear Channel being the largest owner and operator of uh, radio stations um, in the United States, um, after 9-11 had issued a memorandum of songs that they uh, deemed lyrically questionable and asked program directors to sort of ease off on playing.
1: Yeah. Holy fuck. This list is...
0: Oh my god! Like there's some there's some gold ones here. <laughs> there's some real fucking gold ones here. Like yeah. um... Like Bobby I, Darren's Mac the knife.
1: Yeah, bare naked ladies falling for the first time.
0: <laughs> uh, Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky.
1: Uh, uh, CCR's <laughs> traveling band
0: uh limp biscuits break stuff uh which was a a classic there right there also funnily enough uh pod's boom is on here but at the time rob do you remember what their hit single was on the radio uh
1: P- was it
0: um it's their biggest one
1: oh uh youth of a nation correct yeah so okay. ironically
0: enough while uh, uh clear channel told uh program directors to pump the brakes on boom uh, uh youth of the nation ascended to the top of the charts
1: Yes, and of course, they also suggested saliva's click-click boom, so there was a lot of boom <laughs> on this fucking list.
0: Uh, also, one that made me laugh was the Safari's Wipeout. Like, <laughs> all right, guys, you you got it. Um, so the funny thing, too, is that uh, Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful, what a Wonderful World uh, yeah. was <laughs> infimously included because of Clear Channel's belief that happy music was inappropriate for broadcast following the attacks.
1: I mm, Like, what the fuck is appropriate? Like, neither
0: be happy nor sad, Rob.
1: Like, do you think this is, like, Stanley Kubrick at the fucking end of Dr. Strangelove and the the bombs dropping? Like, no. Like, fuck off with that. Like, in a time like that, that that's the kind of shit that you fucking need. Like, Brian, how did you feel about corns falling away from me being mentioned on that list? I,
0: I felt some type of way. But, Rob, the more confusing one is Ricky Nelson's take on Traveling Man. <laughs> like, that just, that just fucking no sense. No yeah, sense at all.
1: No, it was it was really really dumb. I felt personally attacked when they mentioned uh Local H is bound for the floor. Dude. It's just,
0: okay, no. So we need to talk about local age. How do you feel about local age?
1: I I love their, cause they what, put out like a couple of records. They didn't really last that long. Like as a as a band. Uh wait, didn't they get back together though?
0: Yes. OK, um, they have a a hit song after As Good as Dead called uh, All the Kids Are Right. You know that song? Yes. Da, da, yes. Okay. I love All the Kids a Are Right. A fucking classic banger.
1: Yeah, it is a fucking classic banger. And like they kind of remind me a little bit of like at least their mentality uh, and like the attitude that they're kind of bringing to their music. They kind of remind me of uh, Dinosaur Pile Up oh bit.
0: interesting yeah, i can kind of see that yeah especially yeah. in the the loud soft department right yeah exactly. um uh 2002's here comes the zoo has my favorite intro or first track from them uh hands on the bible i don't know if you know the song at all yep yeah. okay yeah like uh i mean i could talk about local age for a while which i don't want to necessarily do uh because this is <laughs> no not a but i podcast. mean like we, As we could yet, table that agreed to <laughs>
1: <laughs> right we can um yeah we can table that for now and come back to it you know
0: I want to uh, find some of the people on this list and really just interview them. Just b- like like 311, your song Down was on here. And then just like base an interview off of that, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, if John Lennon were alive, then like
0: <laughs> fucking let's let's not play Imagine. Also, before I forget, <laughs> uh, the most infamous instance, I think, in this entire list is Rage Against the Machine, all of their songs. <laughs> yeah. just fuck it all of them off.
1: all of them don't play a fucking one <laughs> like do, here's the thing though do we know how effective this list was do we know
0: i think it's like per market right like some people adhere to it more i do believe that um the buzz wasn't owned by clear channel but they sort of stepped off on some of these okay yeah uh, yeah uh including click click boom unfortunately Listen, uh, but I do, I do remember them banging "Left Behind" pretty hard in October 2001.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. I'm trying to remember when I like dipped off of my um, buzz list. Buzzitude. Yeah, I think it was probably around like 0304.
0: So yeah. The weird thing too uh, with this list is that tools and tolerances on here. But I'd rather they took the Anima song off there, right? Because it's all about how California should be slipping into the sea.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, how did
0: that not make it there?
1: that that's the more you know that's the choice that makes more sense but you know
0: can i ask you uh your opinion on one last thing rob so yeah. uh the last song alphabetical on this list is the zombies she's not there is the she the united states
1: i'm assuming so i wondered that myself uh i'm like you know because betsy uh ross made that flag man
0: shit <laughs> It's just such a confusing song because it's a great song and, uh, you know, should be listened to a lot. But how does in the context of, you know, the 9-11 attacks, does that fit into the narrative?
1: I don't know, man. I fucking don't know. It, like, I think people were on the fly just like, I, I want to picture a group of people in a room fucking just like throwing out songs left and right. No, they shouldn't play this. The the fucking zombies. <laughs>
0: The like the one like classic rock station that's like we play this a lot, guys.
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, and like I'm giving them Vince McMahon voices right now. I know I'm doing that, <laughs> but like
0: <laughs> just, just a bunch of Vince like sitting gorilla, just like kind of just yelling at each other. Uh, and the curtains open up to like all of the radio programmers just being there in a large room, being yeah. like, "Listen, guys,
1: <laughs> exactly, <laughs> we <sighs> can't be playing this chord song." <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, those like those like uh, months and and let's say like eighteen months like following 9, like nine eleven were a very weird time for popular culture. I think.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people were kind of walking on pins and needles, and even during the two like tribute shows that uh, were shortly, you know, organized after that took, you know, after nine eleven took place, like. There was a very weird vibe. And you know what I think like brought us out of it? I think Bruce Springsteen's The Rising kinda of brought us yeah, out of I it. Yeah, I agree with that. I that. agree
0: that like that in particular was a you know uh you know, a guy being from the area saying it's okay.
1: And it, it was so kind of weird to listen to Bruce Springsteen of all people, a guy who's been so critical of the United States and its policies and and the guy that wrote fucking Johnny ninety nine for fuck's sake. He pens, like, probably one of the most uplifting albums of the 2000s in response to an event so fucking tragic that it's still raw and it's still real for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I feel like he was torn between the establishment and the people affected by the establishment. Yeah. I I feel like that's kind of where it's at, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, You can kind of feel it on that record, because I think it, like satiates both of those kind of
0: uh audiences i agree with that yeah <sighs> man uh you know a lot of people refer to it as the loss uh you know a loss of innocence for uh you know the united states so it's kind of an interesting way of. and i think we're all just uh you know um because we in canada are sort of like by osmosis affected by a lot of things too and i feel like there's just like we've gone from like uh, uh being affected to just being fucking exhausted
1: yeah i uh yeah I mean,
0: I'm just going to leave it at that because I don't want to get like, this isn't a a politics podcast necessarily. But, you know, uh, I just I found this list very interesting as a cultural artifact.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's uh, it's weird to even talk about it. It's weird to even think about. Yeah. The kind of the policies that came up after that. And, you know, and I won't really get into that on this episode. But like
0: you can read Rob's live journal, though.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll put it out there for you. Did you
0: have a live journal?
1: No, I didn't. No, okay. I wasn't much of a journal. Full disclosure, back in when I was in college, 2000, I think this was around 2003, 2004, I wrote very shitty poetry for a while. Very shitty poetry. And uh, it's a phase I don't ever want to return to. But uh, yeah, those poems are, I think, kicking around here somewhere.
0: I think a lot of people kind of went through that phase. I, did, I
1: looked back on it and realized that I didn't have any place to be in that
2: phase.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I think this is a great moment to plug our socials. So uh, if you want to talk about band songs or like your poetry from 15 to 20 years ago, yeah. uh, the Coda podcast on Twitter, you can also email us at thecodacast at com in order to, you know, uh, share uh, the feelings you've had. About you know these topics at hand,
1: yeah. And if you uh, if you want to get at me personally at your UFO guy uh, spelled Y E R UFO guy on Twitter, I will gladly talk to you about my shitty poetry from two thousand three.
0: <laughs> and you can reach me at uh, Brian with an I hasty uh, I E at the end, uh, so that way you can share with me all of your new metal thoughts. Let's just let's like 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 split the you know the division of labor down the middle. I kind of feel like
1: you're destined through this to make this oral history of new metal
0: somehow. <laughs> I promise there's going to be like, like next episode of the episode after there will be no mention of new metal and it's going to make you slightly uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm <laughs> fucking uncomfortable just thinking about
0: it. Uh, but before that, Rob, let's head on over to the B side.
1: Let's do it, man.
0: All right, Rob, uh, you've, uh, you've been a trolley man boy in the past with your B side recommendation. <laughs> and I'm scared, uh, what you have for me for episode eight. So hit me with it.
1: Listen, I'm my trolling picks. They're going to be strategic, Brian. They're going to come <laughs> out of nowhere. It's not going to be this week, though. This week, damn, okay. This week, uh, it's just typical sad bastardy pick, you know, from yours truly. Something very on points. Uh, my B side recommendation this week is an album called In the Throes by John Moreland. So, Morland is a singer songwriter from Oklahoma. And as a teen and in his early 20s, uh, he sang in punk and hardcore bands such as 30 Called Arson and Black Gold Band. In the late 2000s, he transitioned to more of a rootsy sound. Uh, he went solo and uh, embraced like this Oklahoma lifestyle. You can definitely hear it in his tunes. Moreland started to become more well-known after the FX show Sons of Anarchy featured like three of his songs and I think they're all from In the Throws or it might have been the record before that but uh, the reason I know John Moreland's name is because of a performance he gave on Stephen Colbert in 2016 and uh, we're going to include a link to that I think it's like a Daily Motion video because it was taken off of YouTube I think. Uh, a few years ago, but it's a performance he did of a song called break my heart sweetly, which is like kind of one of those stop you in your tracks kind of songs in the same way that like cover me up is by Jason Isbell. It it, like stops you. It's haunting. It's uh, it's very precocious. It's it's like a combination of like Jason Isbell and um, Jeff Buckley. If you put the two together, like, uh, Jeff Buckley's lyrical content with uh, Jason Isbell's like uh, songwriting, you, that's pretty much what Break My Heart Sweetly is and uh since then I've been a huge fan of Moreland. and um he recently actually dropped his fifth album. Uh, it's simply called LP5. It's a it's a good record. I don't think it's one of his best, but uh it's still worth a listen if you want to give it a shot. But uh what I saw in that performance was just a precocious songwriter that wrote about breakups in a way that I really hadn't heard before. And you get a lot of that on In The Throws. With Moreland, there is a sincerity and an authenticity that he fucking brings to the table, and it's incredible. Uh, for instance, the the closing lyrics on the song, Blacklist. The older I get, you know, truth, it gets harder to find. And famous false prophets get by off of robbing good men blind maybe i don't have it in me maybe it doesn't have me in it and if i don't fly that's fine just let me find a place where i fit fucking incredible man just fucking incredible i i love this shit uh, it's so fucking amazing and you you get a lot of that uh there's a great country song on here called nobody gives a damn about songs anymore and it's <laughs> and it's uh it's really great but um Moreland brings the best kind of heartbreak to the table. It's precocious, it's authentic, it's relatable, and it's just fucking good. So go listen to In the Throws by John Moreland. It's a record that'll put you on your ass, it'll stop you in your tracks.
0: So Rob, I just Googled him, right? Because when I don't know an act, I like to sort of like visualize what they look like a little bit when you're talking about them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have good news. Yeah. He's coming to Montreal at the end of this month, and, uh, you know, just drive up, Rob. Join yeah. me.
1: Yeah, fuck, fuck, man. Join I me. Gotta, I gotta come to Montreal <laughs> for this shit. Listen,
0: I, I got a couch that you can sleep on. Awesome. Uh, you know, he's playing Tuesday, March 31st. Why not do this? Tickets are 20 bucks. Come on up. Fucking A. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, but you, yeah, you've piqued my interest. Uh, this sounds like something I will definitely listen to. I feel like I've, like, I've I've hit, like, 17 to 18% more sad bastard since we've, like, started doing this. <laughs>
1: You know, so. I've I've renewed my interest in new metal, and I have I fuck man, I can't tell you like before recording this podcast, like yeah, I'd, I'd bust, I'd dust off, you know, some Linkin Park, I'd dust off some Corn, like very infrequently, but uh, since then, yeah, I found myself dipping my toes in the pool again.
0: <laughs> the, the like the dirty like piss soaked pool though, like let's be honest <laughs> with this, like it's not it's not yeah, like a I nice gotta pool. take a shower right after. <laughs> Rob, keeping in line what we've discussed here, I uh, chose an artist that I had mentioned uh, earlier this episode. Yeah, Vanilla Ice's "1998: A New Metal Magnum Opus" hard to swallow, produced by the granddaddy of new metal, Ross Robinson. This is very clear from the outset uh, that he's produced this. As the first track, "Living" has turntables up in the front, and the intro riff would be uh, at home on Sepultura's "Roots." Uh, too cold, his tough as nails, reimagining of Ice Ice Baby is another shining moment, and also late album edition stomping through the bayou is pure gold. Rob, I am kidding. I wanted to list this off before getting into my real B-side recommendation.
1: <laughs> I was I was going to see how long you were going to keep this going. I'm like, I when do I put my foot down here? Because I can't even fucking deal with this shit. You are not going to fucking troll me. You fuck.
0: So I picked an album that I came upon super randomly, but it is very near and dear to my heart. It's a double LP set. It is Can't Heat and John Lee Hooker's Hooker and Heat from 1971.
1: Oh fuck! That's a good record. So
0: I had to look up how they met years ago because it it just seemed very odd a pairing, right? Like you know, Can Heat most notice you know known for like their very like quaint stylings and then Jelly Hooker's you know hard blues. Mm. Um, so uh, they recorded this double album in 1971. So the band, and um, this is from Wikipedia, had originally met Hooker at the airport in Portland, Oregon. Some sort of synchronicity, right? Because that's where the Kingsmen were also from, uh, and discovered that they were fans of each other's work. So Hooker and Can Heat became good friends, and Hooker. Has stated that wilson was quote the greatest harmonica player ever rob what yes what <laughs> yes so the original format was like uh, hooker was supposed to record a couple of songs on his own and then like he'd join in um like various members would join in but soon enough they started jamming in the studio and produce uh this double lp in like almost in no time at all and this was also the first record um uh, that uh, of hooker's career that charted hitting uh number 90, uh, 73 in february of, of 71. So check out the first track, messing with the hook. You know, if you listen to that, you kind of get a good idea of what you're into. Um, burning hell was an interesting just because of the, um, studio banter that happens at the beginning of the record in between hooker and like a lot of the members of can heat and um, the track whiskey and women and uh, let's make it. There's a real live in the room feel uh, with that record that I fucking love like so much,
1: which is like rare to hear. You don't, you don't hear that anymore. The like, bands don't cut fucking albums live in like a, a live setting like that. So yeah, I, I fucking agree. It's a, it's a fucking banger of an album. Like I, man, it's probably been about 12 years since I've listened to it, but it's, of time. yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to dust it off. I'm going to fucking go to town on this.
0: <laughs> I'm like, I'm not necessarily like a big, like blues person, but I feel like I need to explore more of this in 2020. So I feel like we need to, like, I want to force us into a situation where I have to listen to more of it.
1: You want more of that blues, man. Yeah, I, like, like a
0: different kind of Sad music.
1: Yeah, um, I kind of remember a the, the time when I was more open to the blues. I took uh, every single music class that my community college offered. So there was a class about pop music, classical music, uh, jazz, and I think that was it. There were only three, but uh, that, like pop music class kind of opened me up to blues and jazz and other types of music. And like, I'll kind of, I'll never forget the first time uh, I ever heard the thrill is gone by BB King. It's kind of one of those it's, it's one of those stark songs. Like if you could somehow record a blues musician by himself in a room get some of those echoey vocals like um that um uh, muddy waters album that uh, folk uh blues album that he did i forget what the fuck it's called but uh um actually no we're not going to leave it like that muddy waters deserves better uh, look it up yeah i'm looking it up right now uh The Folk Singer, yeah. It's a nineteen sixty four album. Like it's not electric, it's an acoustic blues album. He's doing mostly folk covers, but and folk songs in this really bluesy style, but like fucking listening to him in those open echoey vocals him by himself it's really one of the most fucking amazing things and like that's the essence of blues really before you get to like blues bands and shit like that like it's this isolated person in a room telling you that even though i'm going through this shit it's all gonna be okay we're we're just like this is one way in which we deal with it so Yeah. yeah fucking a right I Great feel like the in-the-studio
0: in 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 experience has been, like, replaced by, like, um you know, uh, live recordings uh, of, like, sessions, right? Like, for websites and the like. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Fuck that's it, the right. real in-the-room that you can get to, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But if anyone has any in-the-room sort of, like, newish albums that they've uh, listened to, I'd love to hear about that, especially if they're bands, right? So, the Kodo Podcast over um on Twitter, let us know.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just fucking hit us up i always need you know some good recommendations fucking hit me with them
0: (laughs) rob this has been episode eight of the coda uh podcast and as always until next time keep the cans on I apologize. I feel like I cut you off because I was just very excited about all this.
1: That's all good, man. It's all good. <laughs> this is more your territory than it is mine. My time with new metal and emo, <laughs> and like, I, I don't look at a lot of it fondly necessarily. Fair enough. Like, Fair enough. like um, there are some bands that I still listen to. Murder by Death, I'll listen to. I'll listen to some MCR. I can't listen to Dashboard Confessional because it's just so fucking. It's, it's very cringy. It, yeah, it's
0: like, it's, and like even the newer stuff is is pretty bad.
1: Yeah, it it is really fucking bad. Like I could do like cuts from the first album, but I mean like, yeah, Paramore that second Gym Class Heroes album, some Fallout Boy. That's about it. You yeah,
0: know? yeah, I'd agree with most of that. I'm trying to think.
1: Well, I do, <sighs> I do bust out Amory's, like, greatest hits every now and then, because right. there's some fucking bangers on there. Um, oh, um, some shit, Berlin. what was,
0: hmm? what was, um, uh, what to do, what is it, uh, what do we do when we're dead or whatever? What is, uh, oh, uh, armor, armor for Sleep?
1: Oh, fuck, yeah, um, they just... Car Underwater? Fuck yeah. Yeah, um... What the fuck is that? What the fuck is that album? I know they're Hold on, I'm doing a... what to do.
0: What to do when you were dead. Yeah, right they're
1: doing a 15th anniversary tour right now for that.
0: Really? Oh, fuck. Yes. I wish I was coming here because I love I love uh, carbon water as well as uh, basement ghost singing are probably mm-hmm. my two favorite songs from them. Uh, shit. I know what I'm listening to tonight.
1: Yeah, you are. Fucking A. We both are. I feel
0: like this is just an extension like uh, of, of the actual podcast. So I feel like you should probably leave most of this in. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>